0: All right, so I was reflecting a bit on on your path to Yogaville, to Integral Yoga. You know, it's so interesting because I haven't kind of heard a, a similar path where, you know, you met Swami Sachidananda through your career as a journalist, you know, I think in the 70s, right? And then- 1973. 1973. And then as far as I understand, you know, you continued on, you know, as a journalist and then years later when you were in a very challenging place as you called it previously a sort of beacon came to you which reminded you of him of the yoga which led to coming to Yogaville for a visit and then making it your home so can you share the story a little bit just about about your journey I mean it's so fascinating for people don't who, who don't know all the things that you've done as a journalist as a civil rights activist um you know you've spent time with dr martin luther king with the dalai lama um you you were one of the founders for all things considered and npr so you're very deep into all this and and now you're here at yogaville so how did that happen
1: almost 10 years in yogaville almost 10 years let me take you back to 1973 i was working on public television in new york city My focus was crime reporting. I'm on my way to work one day, and I see these big, beautiful posters of this extraordinary-looking guy. And I had some vague memory of Woodstock, but I didn't focus a lot on it. And it says that this guy, this guru, was having this big meeting coming up. And something inside of me said, you should go to that meeting and bring a camera crew. I spoke to my boss, and he said, I don't know about the meeting, but why don't you do an interview? So I called, and they said, okay, sure, come on by. I had, you know, had interactions with presidents and kings and lots of ambassadors at the UN, and I'd been with all kinds of genius characters, the inventor of the H-bomb, a whole wide range of the human experience that journalists get a chance to taste. So I, I thought nothing of it. Camera crew arrived early, set up for the interview. I arrive on time. There's this guy back to camera on the phone. I sit down in my seat, put on the microphone. The guy turns out to be Swami Sachidananda. He turns around and faces me. And in that moment, I forgot all about interviewing presidents and kings and ambassadors and powerful figures in the world. And I couldn't breathe for a moment. And he reaches over and he taps my throat and he says, you can breathe now. And now you can interview. I'd never had an experience remotely like that. Now you can breathe and now you can interview. That's a really interesting way to be in an interview for a news program. I uh, kind of reverted to somewhat smartass and asked him questions like, so is there any hope for New York City spiritually or is it simply (laughs) going to collapse into the Atlantic Ocean? And he took that and spun it around six or seven times, had fun with it. I said, just imagine you're a cop, a New York City cop. What in the world would yoga do for you? And then he picked that up and spun it three or four ways and told beautiful stories about policing. And as he says, in what became a primetime special, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) on on the public television station in New York City, the flagship, uh, he said, a police officer needs to be a saintly fellow. And I thought to myself when he said that, ah, what nonsense. Of course, over the years, it turns out to be exactly right. The job is impossible. If you are not somehow a saintly fellow, you're going to wind up in a lot of trouble. You're going to get other people hurt. You've got to be an extraordinary human being. And yoga is a great way to do it. That's why today in Toronto, Cops can't go out until they meditate. No control first. Meditate first. So now this interview. That's runs the case
0: about, in Toronto right now? Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, this uh, interview runs about 25 minutes. And I'd scheduled with his office that the next day I would bring a camera crew to the Connecticut ashram. He hadn't built Yogaville yet. It's 1973. Yogaville is seven years away. And, you know, to make some pretty pictures. I did something really strange. For some reason, I brought my wife and kids. (laughs) Nobody brings their wife and kids or their spouse and children to a news assignment. You just don't do that. But I did that. And at one point, Swami Sashidana showed up while we were filming. And my then three-year-old daughter looked up at him. He looked down at her. He scooped her up and put her on his shoulders. And for about 10 minutes, he gave her a tour. And afterwards, I said, um, all right, um, Morley, Swamiji's busy, so better come down now. And she said, no, Dad, you can go now. I'm staying with Swamiji. And he looked up at her, and he said, you must listen to your father. Grabbed her, spun her around, gently put her down, handed her to me. Um, she became this astonishing yogi, uh, teaching Hatha all around the world to at-risk children, uh, where she toured as a, a musician. And more on her later. But so I, I didn't know that during that time there. Why I didn't know, I'm not sure. But I found out something extraordinary happened beyond that encounter. Um, the camera crew did what it did, brought the film back. I drove my family back. I was off for two days. I report to my assignment editor, who says, uh, you're needed in the program director's office. What's that about? And I report to the program director's office. Ah, came in. come on in. I walk into the office, there's the program director and the use director. And they're looking at me as though I was some sort of funny specimen that I just crawled out from under maybe an SNL sketch. And I said, what's up with you guys? And they said, you can't use any of those beautiful pictures your crew shot for you at the ashram. or um, I said, well, what would you mean why? They said, well, you became his devotee there. You became his disciple. Mm-hmm. And the program director says, don't you know that? And he said, you know, you've been on a day off. The film, the raw film of him reaching out, putting his hand on you and you falling backwards into the arms of two of his devotees has been seen by pretty much everybody in the building. So for some reason you may have forgotten it, but that stuff is dead. You can't use any of it. I said, oh no, I'm so sorry. And he said, wait, the interview that you did is fantastic. It's a primetime special. I said, what? Yes, you hadn't met him before you did the interview. It's legitimate inquiry with remarkable responses from the guru. We want it on the air. We're assigning the production of this film to our two master editors, the Marinelli brothers. Go talk to them. They'll tell you what you need. Matter of fact, the news director says, "Uh, Cameron, I think what you need to do is to make an appointment for yourself and start studying integral yoga at Satchitananda's New York City studio and tell us whether this stuff works. So that's what the film does. <laughs> it talks about, without the woo-woo stuff about what happened in Connecticut, my dealing with stress and needing help and taking a yoga class and more and more yoga classes. And so you see me in the film struggling to sit in a half others But uh, you know the film's available now. It's on the Smokey Hutchins' own website, and it's been seen by thousands and thousands of people. What a hoot. That was uh, that was my time with Famasachidananda. And then no, another 40 years pass. That was 40, 4-0. My journalism career crashes.
0: Five, like, hold, on one second. hold on. Hold yeah? on. You you yeah. had this experience though. Yeah. As your coworkers kind of um, Yeah showed you that you fell into A role uh, as a disciple you know that's what a powerful experience that was right i didn't remember it and didn't remember so you didn't remember explain that how could you have not remembered it and was it something about the fact that this was caught on film and everyone else saw it and i don't know did you feel like embarrassed about that and then chose your career over this experience that you had was there a conflict I
1: think what happened is that in that moment I had a short circuit (laughs) that my brain said, no, we're not, we're not going to cope with this. It's happened, but we're going to put this in a box. Hmm. And the box turned out to be pretty important 40 years later. My career crashed unexpectedly. I began a life pattern of not sleeping. And three years later, my physicians told me that I was nearing Organ failure. Yeah, from not sleeping. I didn't know what was gonna happen next. I sat in front of a computer just staring at it. And in the back of my head I heard a faint sound. It sounded a lot like Hariyum, 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 and it got louder and louder. And I couldn't figure out what that was. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It sounds like Sachidananda during our filming at a, some public event of his, which we also did, of course, to go with the film. It's in there. Sachidananda. I wonder what happened to him. So I typed his name into Google, and he had left his body years earlier, but he built Yogaville, which he mentioned to me kind of en passant that that was going to be his next big project. Some fabulous place, probably in, in the South. And I made multiple errors because I was in bad shape typing in Yogaville. Finally connected with Yogaville and I in desperately inarticulate ways was telling this reservation clerk what I was going through in my life and finally she said, hey, um, you know, this is not a medical facility but we do have a lot of peace here. It sounds like you could use some peace and we have a special, five days for the price of three. And I said, I'll take 10. She said, we don't do that. You can have five or three. Then we'll see. I got on the next train. When I got off from Washington, D.C., Charlottesville, some three hours later, it was nighttime. It was cold. It was January of 2014. And I almost fell off the train onto the platform. That was testament to my condition at the time. The deteriorated nature of my condition. Plus, I was fatter than the house. I was a good 100 pounds overweight. Came with the depression. Years later, Jayan, the ashram staffer who picked me up at the train that night, would tell me that my journey from Amtrak Yoga Ville, which is about an hour. He was in charge of that. He was driving the car. He said it was the first time in a decade of picking up people at airports, bus terminals, and train stations that he feared that the passenger would be dead before he could get the passenger to the ashram. So here I am, still not dead, almost 10 years later. My gratitude to Yogaville is endless. And when my friends uh, over the years have contacted me and said, well, you know, I'm reading what you're posting on your Facebook page about Yogaville. It sounds perfect. And I always laugh and I say, there's no such thing as a perfect place or a perfect human being. But it's wonderful. And it's transformative. Yogaville scraped a 100 pounds of fat and even more sadness for me about six months preparing me among other things or among other things meeting with the third and final life of my life the third great love of my life and uh, Lalito Leslie Stone turns out to be a veteran teacher of ethical yoga retired doctor of oriental medicine a very advanced soul who for some reason puts up with me
0: <laughs> okay so it's pretty amazing. I would say that your whole life is transformed from uh, a voice in your mind that was just saying, how do you own? And, you know, I think for many people, right? Like hearing something, this this just feels like a very interesting place to, to look at a little bit, because some people will hear something like that and say, and they've had an experience similar and they'll say, yes, I get it. I understand. Others probably have never had an experience like that. And it, and it passed. So what's that? I hadn't. And I was 69 years old at the time. So I had not had an experience remotely like that until that one moment. Mm. But you've all, but you also shared, you know, the experience of, of seeing him on a billboard and having a call. I, I, I need to go there to that. You've also talked to me about, you know situations where uh, someone had hijacked a helicopter, and the policeman came up, and and uh, and the policeman had no idea what to do. And you t- could tell that he was, you know, really out of sorts and scared. And you said that you just spoke to him, "Fear not, God is start. with you," which was totally like a foreign thing. You have no idea why you said something like that. So, what I get the sense, what I'm kind of getting to a little bit. Is you seem to to have a bit of a balance here, like you walk a line of of being a very grounded journalist, uh, and yet you've had these experiences where other people would call them, you know, extremely spiritual or woo woo or whatever label you want to, t- t- ungrounded, you know. So, what do you make of all that? Yeah,
1: I think there's very little difference between being grounded and present in your spiritual heart, whether you know you've got one or not. It helps when you know you've got one. I was preparing for this conversation with you and it occurred to me that it was my first wife who introduced me to yoga um, in 1970 and handed me a book. She said, you should read this. It was the Tibetan Book of the Dead. That's an interesting handoff from when your kids essentially were, you know, young people. But uh, I went through some of that, and some of it said, "Hey, are you awake or not?" And I thought, oh, maybe not. But that, that kind of was prying open the, the old can with some sort of a heavy tool, and maybe it let some air in. But I, I've had a life that's been filled with opportunity to be around powerful spiritual people. Martin Luther King Jr. Used to, interview, inter, he used to introduce me to friends of his by saying, this is Jeff Kamen. He's a Chicago-based radio journalist. I was there for five years. And he said, uh, he's also our ubiquitous friend and the most church Jewish boy in America. And I would say, Dr. King, that's your fault. I can't cover you organizing unless I go to church every day with you. And uh, he would then say, hasn't done you any harm. And one time he would do that. He did that. And I surprised him. I started to sing his favorite hymn back to him. Mm. (laughs) He, He laughed. And I said, don't worry, I won't sing it too loud. People won't run away. But the line goes like this. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am weak. You are strong, precious Lord. Take my hand and lead. So I've had that running through me since hmm, 1966. All this was preparation for my collapse near death because of my own irresponsibility, my own depression. You know, you get warned along the way. If you keep going on that, you're going to destroy yourself. You got to get more sleep. Oh, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. almost destroyed myself. By the way, no drugs, no alcohol, just stupidity. And depression, which follows stupidity, makes a nice hole for depression it comes right in and says, "No problem." What no problem. do you mean by stupidity. stupidity? Explain that. Well, when, when early on in the process, when my career suddenly crashed, many wiser friends, you know, ran up to me and said, "Look, this is a really bad time coming up. Really bad time. Try not to bang into the camera." Um, and you know, you need to do the following kinds of things to make sure you don't fall into depression. Yeah, yeah, fine. no, no, couldn't listen, couldn't listen to wisdom from anyone. And the odd thing is, at that time, I was married to a clinical psychologist, and I couldn't listen to her. Either. There's a kind of willfulness about ignorance and stupidity, and you do that, you just you like you're, so you're welcoming in the dark force of depression. That's stuff that you can intervene early on. Gets harder to intervene after a while. Takes over.
0: So the the core of your stupidity in the, at that time was not allowing your yourself to be supported. by by people around you? You bet. It's a very famous Sanskrit word,
1: arrogance. Arrogance. (laughs) Arrogance is a destroyer. It's a destroyer. Look at our national political life. Arrogance, arrogance, arrogance. It's poison. And it opens the way for all kinds of dark crap that fills the space. It isn't only light that rushes in. It's darkness too. There's a competition all the time. Uh, you you mentioned the helicopter hijacking. I want to tell the story because I think it's fun and it's short. In the early days, relatively speaking of television news reporters had to work with three men, and they were all men then, three-man crews. There was a cameraman, an electrician responsible for lights, and a sound technician. And his sound box was literally plugged into the cameraman's camera because they had to record the sound onto magnetic stripe on the film. These guys were very different from me, even though we were all seemed to be white guys, and they were all white. Most of them, almost all of them uh, at that time. Um, they were not university educated, um, and I didn't meet a single Jewish news camera crew, camera member, crew member in New York in years, never did. So here are these guys from working class Christian community. And here's this annoying university educated Jewish guy comes in and makes their life miserable because he wants to go, go, go get the story. They want to just do their jobs, get through the day and take care of their own lives in their own way. We had a rule at Channel 11 News in New York. And what the rule said was you come in for your news shift, report to the assignment editor. If there's nothing happening, you join your camera crew downstairs and you wait for an assignment. You don't go running off doing stuff. So I joined the camera crew. There's nothing going on. Waiting for an assignment on the radio. One of the guys says, hey, hey, Cayman, do you mind? We got nothing to do. Can we go to our favorite coffee joint? Do you mind? And I thought, I keep telling these guys no. All right, let's go. I'll take the heat. The office screens at us. So their favorite coffee joint was at the uh, Oh right underneath what was then called the Pan Am Building in Midtown Manhattan. They park, they go inside, they come out with their favorite donuts and coffee, and they're sitting there five, ten minutes go by, they're really enjoying themselves. Suddenly the radio explodes. Frank Coffee, the assignment editor, is screaming my name and the cameraman's name. Cayman Buckman, where are you? And I don't lie. So I said, standing by. Which is not a direct answer. And I said, what's going on? He said, helicopter hijacking, heading to the Pan Am building. How soon can you get there? Wow. So we get there ahead of the cops because we're there already. We're in this huge freight elevator. The doors are starting to close to take us up to the roof, which is where the helicopter is coming. And as the doors are closing, I'm seeing these three cops running toward us. And I grabbed these doors and I push them aside. And I, and they say, oh, thanks. And now they're in the elevator going up, you know, 40, 50 floors to the roof. And two of the cops, these are all young cops in their 20s. They're big guys, um, but they're not wearing uh, any stripes on their shoulders. They're, they're patrol officers. They're officers. But one of them, the guy sitting closest to me, has a single stripe on his uniform shoulder, which means that he's regarded as a promising Young potential manager one day, maybe one day he becomes a sergeant. Good brain. And I turned to him and I say, as the elevator is going up, I said, How are you doing with this? And he said, What do you mean, how am I doing? Some psychos hijacked the helicopter, it's coming here, and I'm in charge. And I felt this force overwhelm me and I grabbed his shoulder with my hands and I said, Fear not, the Lord is with you. And he looks down at me. He's about six three. I'm six feet tall. And he says, "Yeah." Suddenly, the door is open. We're on the roof. You can see the helicopter. is coming straight at us. The helicopter comes down and it starts to land. And at that point, the guy has hijacked the helicopter, it's a two place helicopter, two seats. He shoots the pilot. Fortunately, it was not a serious wound. But you know, shooting a pilot while he's landing is never a good idea. And now the helicopter is kind of bouncing around. And this previously scared young cop, suddenly bellows. He says, Wilson, Davis, whatever the names is, follow me. Each of you, grab a strut. And he throws his own body straight into the helicopter, grabs the gun and picks him up while he weighs nothing and slams him to the roof and cups him. Coming up behind us is an ambulance crew. <laughs> they take care of the pilot. Another ambulance crew shows up just in case somebody else is hurt. And the the cop says, cuff him to the gurney right now. So they cuff him to the gurney. And as this guy's going by, I'm furious. I don't get furious on Simon. Something's going on in me. And I run up to him and I said, what in the world did you do that for? Why did you do that? And he said, it's the beginning of a new terrorist organization. I said, no, it's not. You're just a jerk with a gun. Hmm. He said, I am? Oh. Then they took him away. And the cop with the stripe on his sleeve, who I had grabbed in the elevator and to whom I had said, The Lord is with you, don't worry, he came over to me and he said, Hey, who the hell are you? And I'm holding a microphone, right? With the Channel 11 logo on. It. I said, Jeff came in from Channel 11. He said, No, man. I mean, who are you? And I said, I'm not sure. And he grabbed me and said, Thank you, okay. whoever you are. See you later. So that was, that was probably the, the first time that I was conscious of becoming an instrument of energy that was way bigger, more powerful, and higher than mine.
0: Do you know who you are now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm your friend and brother on this podcast with you, doing what I can just as you are to add a little bit more light to the day having been gifted so much of it myself here in Yogaville in almost 10 years. As I said early on, I'm endlessly grateful to this place. And it's not perfect, but there are no perfect places. And there are wonderful teachers here. And the experience of Yogaville is transformative. But you have to come.
0: I want to ask you about this idea of full responsibility. We've talked yeah. about this a lot. Yeah, yeah. I know it's been impactful for you lately and, and for me as well. Um, so this idea of taking full, full responsibility of your life, um, I'm wondering how does this play into all that happens that's outside of our control, right? And, like these, these events, like the one that you're describing, like you happen to go to get coffee underneath the Pan Am building. And that's exactly where you needed to be at that time. It's like, you know, or a voice in your head or just, you can never predict this stuff. Like you can never control it. So there's that element, but then there's also the element of taking full, res- full responsibility of everything that happens. So how do you, how do you work with that? How do you balance that?
1: So there are two, fundamental forces operating in everybody's life at the same time. There's the self-generated. That's what you got to take responsibility for. Whatever you generate, whatever you can do for yourself and for others, that's on you. There are moments in life, and we all have them, when outside force invades your space, and you got no choice but to deal with it. And sometimes it can be scary as hell, or you can become deeply saddened by it or, delighted by it. The question is, where does your agency, where does your control begin and end? Most importantly, where does it end? Because at the end of agency, at the end of control in your life, those of us who are lucky enough, blessed enough to be students of yoga, in this case, integral yoga, but all, all yoga officers, there's something called the witness state. It's something everybody has, but most people don't know how to unlock the door. You open the door to witness state, and you discover pretty soon that no matter what is imposed on you from the outside, your control is the attitude you take to what is served to you that you are stuck doing. You're stuck in traffic. You're frustrated. You feel that anger rising because those idiots in front of you are not moving properly. Why they or you consciously invoke the witness state. Watch what's happening. And choose to be amused by it. The difference in your blood pressure is huge. The difference in your self-respect is huge. There's a deliciousness about taking such full responsibility for everything that happens in your life that even the things that are imposed on you, they wind up not having full control after all because you can witness it and decide your attitude to what happens next. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've come to is patience. This applies to that traffic situation and lots more. Patience is a choice. Mm. It's a conscious choice. Stuff happens. What are you going to do in response? Or, or you can consciously choose a patient. patience respond. Patient response. Patience. Watch what happens. Mm. It's beautiful.
0: So there's this, there's this relationship between being the witness and mm-hmm. making better choices. Oh,
1: every time. Yeah. If if you can find your way into witness state, the odds of your screwing up royally descend dramatically. And it applies to everything. Hmm. Remember, there are no perfect people, no perfect places, and no perfect guarantees. But what a wonderful thing, huh? To be able to reduce the risk of screwing up oiling? Not bad.
0: Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about being in that witness state and how you move into that space?
1: Well... I had some unsettling news. It threw me off. And I was starting to spiral emotionally. Remember now, I'm married now to a master yoga teacher. She walked into the room and said, Cher, what's going on? And she said, okay, so what are your choices here? In that moment of being knocked over and spiraling, I'd forgotten I had choices. Hmm. And I, I did that, you know, easy yoga thing where I closed my eyes for a moment. And I watched my breath I followed it. And two or three times, and what was causing me to spiral and to feel awful it didn't seem like a 14-foot-tall spider with big fangs. It felt more like a wolf spider. Ever seen a wolf spider? They're scary-looking, but no venom. When you don't feel like your life is being threatened, you can make much better decisions about the subtleties of life. But there's another. Um, I'm about to be 80, and a while back, about six months ago, Everything was hurting in my body. Everything. And um, trying to figure out what to do. I had been a marathon runner in the 70s and 80s. I know you look at me and you say, this guy. Remember this from a while back. Half-century almost. Um, but I'd fallen out of, out of shape. Added 100 pounds during the depression period of three years. The ashram scraped it off. And I don't run anymore, but I do walk between two and five miles a day, most days of the week. And I passed a sign and said, stay fit, Jim. And I went in, had a conversation with a wonderful staff member there, joined the gym. Turned out that my old people's health insurance meant it was free. I go to the gym now every day, every other day, rather, every other day and I lift weights, and my wife thinks it's fun that I've added a whole bunch of muscle mass, arms, chest. Um, Climbing stairs had been incredibly painful for me. I climb stairs now. Almost four years ago, my left shoulder was totally replaced because it was producing so much pain. I found this brilliant surgeon, Charlottesville, Virginia, at Martha Jefferson Hospital, Steve Gunther, and he was the inventor of the -the state-of-the-art device, the implant in place of your busted-up shoulder. And he cautioned me that, you know, you're going to get maybe 85 90% of function back because of this, but the pain will be gone. So I followed all the instructions, went to all the physical therapy, and I was like, doing okay, doing okay. Remember I've gone to a gym now and started to move mates around. And one day I hear click, click. Another machine in my left shoulder, the one with the replacement. So I call Dr. Gunther's office and I leave a message. And I get a call back in about an hour. And I figured, you know, I was going to get a call back maybe the next day. And it's a nurse and the nurse says, Dr. Gunther wants you in here now. So it's a hundred mile journey, round trip because we are in yoga pill in the woods and I get to the hospital and there are people waiting for me and they take me in and do these x-rays. And five minutes later, there's the surgeon, <laughs> but he had nothing else else to do that day. I don't think so. And he, he, he comes comes, and shakes my hand and smiles, grabs my shoulder, the one that he replaced. And he said, the appliance is fine. Maybe it's a scar tissue making some noise. So I talked to him about the weightlifting. He said, Oh, which weights are you lifting in house? I describe, And he said, okay, stop that shoulder press thing. You're doing don't do that. And instead he said, here's the weightlifting thing that I do. And he said, you just go get some three pounders. You know, they're pink ones. Don't be an egomaniac. Do the three pounders and do this. So instead of this shoulder press machine, he has me doing this. And he said, you know, it's what I do. Of course. But then again, he said, I only need my body, my body strength to do surgery. So it's maybe it might be good enough for you to try. Changed everything. (laughs) I can do all kinds of crazy stuff with the shoulder which wasn't advertised I I now routinely grab relatively heavy bags that used to require two hands now it's one and that not only changed my physical power but my energy sometimes I don't want to go to the gym my energy is crap I think I should be taking a nap I should be watching TV I should be Finishing the memoir, what a crazy idea. And then I'll, I'll somehow, using inertial guidance, I'll take myself to the gym and I get out of the car after I park it and I look at the sign. Stay fit, gym. And all of a sudden, my shoulders go back. And you know how this works, I And you get in there and you put your hands on the weights mindfully. No room here for 18-year-old, even 28- or 38-year-old arrogance with the weights because they don't care about you. You do if you screw up and and you're almost 80 years old, you may not be back in the gym in six weeks, six months, or ever. So I'm mindful. But I keep pushing the boundaries. And I know it's also part of my spiritual life. Self-transcendence with joy and gratitude. Not bad.
0: So what's the point you're you're trying to make here in regard to responsibility and and being the witness? That being the witness... Allowed you to see what you needed, which led to taking responsibility of your health? Yeah. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. And despite my advanced age, I have no prescription medication. No, never smoked, never drank, never did recreational drugs, which is what that does. It gives your body a chance to heal itself and the body's capacity to heal itself. It's astonishing. I got some good breaks in genetics. Everybody on my bloodline, both sides of the bloodline, um, everybody who doesn't smoke, listen to the 90s. Without all this stuff. So I'm looking for 100 as a good mile marker.
0: So would you say that previously mm, you were taking less responsibility because... Absolutely. You You got it. Were you blaming your life circumstances, external factors. Not my fault.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Uh,
1: And I don't think I was that different from most of the people who I knew when things went wrong, they looked immediately outside factors. Now there are outside factors and you know, I'm white. I suffered no racial discrimination. I know, of course, I remember I applied for a job as a photographer at United Press International in uh, 1960 or 70, something early. And I was told by the chief photographer at the time, he says, Yeah, we already have a Jew photographer. Don't bother. That was New York City. What? <laughs> but institutions were still doing that. Do you know the City College of New York, which is now the City University of New York, used to be called? Jewish Harvard, that was because Harvard didn't allow Jews. Yeah, so I think one of the things that uh, taking responsibility for myself has included has been to expand consciously my empathy for others, including people who disagree with me on politics, people who disagree with me even on a race. I have to know what they've been going through in their lives for me to begin to get to the point of, clear-headed observation and analysis, let alone judgment. Judgment is so exhausting and it turns out to be so harmful no matter how
0: high-minded you may think you are. So there's a piece of taking full responsibility for oneself. Do you find throughout the day that you're checking yourself in regard to uh, your judgment? Oh, Yeah. I mean, I I
1: recently had the experience of uh, somebody saying something to me and I'm about to set him straight and I heard the witness say, could you take a moment? (laughs) Just a moment here. Take a breath. What are you doing? Could you not drag me into that with you? And when that dialogue occurs, I always chuckle because I know that's, that's the the more yogic version of me trying to shine through my own nonsense. After all, it's only been 10 years. I'm not fully transformed
0: yet. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to decipher what the nonsense is, right? Because there's, there's something that, you know, you see and it feels it's unjust, it's wrong. And in a way that's a judgment, I'm judging that that's wrong. And there's a fire that lights inside of me that says, do something about this. And that's not necessarily wrong either. Like that can oh, create no, of course not. change. Please. So yeah.
1: Avi, I was a young journalist covering Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement in Mississippi in 1966. I was this Jewish kid from New York who literally had never experienced or witnessed bigotry in action. And there I am in Ku Klux Klan country almost getting myself killed a whole bunch of times because of my ignorance, my arrogance. I failed to ask for help from people who could have guided me away from things. But my innocence also place me you in know, all kinds of interesting positions where that still to be defined spiritual stuff so when in 1966 on the march against fear in mississippi i got lost everybody was covering it with teams of journalists i'm down there working my radio station and for mutual radio network by myself so i have to go someplace away from the march sometimes and eat go to the bathroom i got lost i find my way back i see the march in the distance it looks like it's just beyond a park remember i'm a New York City kid. That wasn't a park. It was a farm. And I think, if I could just walk across that park, I'll park the car here, know who I am somehow. <laughs> and so I grab my tape recorder and I'm walking into the park and I make a turn and there's this scene playing out in front of me. There's this really old guy, probably in his 40s or 50s. I'm 22 at the time. And uh, so old white guy got a, blue steel, five-inch barrel, 38-caliber revolver, and he's pointing it, and I'm following a line with the barrel, and standing frozen in front of him are two young black men wearing what was the uniform of the Civil Rights Movement, which was a white, start business shirt, chino pants, and they're holding empty buckets, as in buckets for water, and they're saying, um, we were looking for, the owner so we could offer to buy some water for the march, please. And this old guy's hand holding the gun, shaking. And that's not a good thing. Guns bad enough. And shaking hand, really bad news. I had spent, remember my initial assignment was as a police reporter. So I'd spent plenty of time with cops and I knew a bunch about guns. And for some reason... I realize I'm coming up out of the guy with the gun's blindside. He doesn't know I'm there. And so I say in my calmest voice, good morning, sir. The old guy looks over at me, still holding the gun from the two young black men. And he says, "Uh, uh, who are you? I said, why, good morning. I'm Jeff Kamen from Mutual Radio Network. Might I be of assistance to you? And now this old man says, there are these, these two N-words here on my property. And, and I don't know. I, and the, the two college-educated young black men are trying to calmly We explained that they just wanted to buy water. And I felt overtaken by a more powerful force than who I am. And I said, might I be of service by escorting these two colored gentlemen off your property? And now the man with the gun stopped shaking so much. And he says, I'd be most grateful. And I foe arrogantly said, you two, follow me. And so we march off his property. We get beyond his point of view, off his property, onto Highway 51. And, of course, the three of us embrace. And they said, that was close. And I say, I don't even know what that was. And here's the giggle. That was in May or June. A couple months later, I'm back in Chicago covering Orion, up a riot, bloody awful, horrible riot. I got lost a lot, and it's nightfall, and there are not a lot of lights in the ghetto. And I, I make this turn, and there are all these young men on the street, and because I'm a complete idiot, I figure, oh, it's an opportunity to do interviews, so. I park the car and I come out of the car and I say, hi guys, Jeff came from WCF on radio. I'd like to get your point of view of what's happening here tonight. And as these guys are closing on I me, mean, I didn't know they were gang guys. They were just guys. This powerful voice comes from out of the darkness, from about that away, about a half a block away or so. And it screams like a voice in a barrel. Young men, don't touch that white man. And there's this shadow advancing at high speed toward where I am next to my car with maybe five or six teenage black kids. And that shadow is getting bigger and bigger. It's this huge man. And suddenly the kids take off. And the shadow enters the light. And it's Martin Luther King's aide, the Reverend James Orange, who had been a story football player before he entered the ministry. And he said, Jeff, what are you doing here? And I said, I got lost. He said, let's get in the car. I'll show you how to get out of here those two guys who I helped rescue from the guy with the gun, they were his assistants. Comic wheels spin, fly, drop, place, breathe. <laughs> I had no idea. One of your colleagues said to me the other day, you've been an unknowing instrument of the Lord for a long time. I guess. Yes. It sure isn't me. Well, but maybe it's becoming me. And I'm becoming it. That would be a good thing. My, uh, my daughter, um, Morley Bruce, you can find her online. Uh, Morley and Chris Bruce, Chris is her husband. Uh, she's an astonishing singer-songwriter. And she has a line in what she does, she says, we are not here on this planet for ourselves. We are here for everyone. Yeah. So discovering your own witness, avoiding arrogance, being open to the light, more love, more empathy. I like it, I recommend it,
0: it's fun. You mentioned uh, fear. It was called the 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 march to March against fear. The march against oh, fear.
1: Yeah, the, the, yeah. The fear was the Ku Klux Klan. Fear yeah. was the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, 1966, uh, a young man named James named James Meredith, who had uh, been the person of color who integrated Old Miss with the assistance of U.S. Army intelligence officers to keep him safe, and the Federalized National Guard, the white folks in Mississippi, not all, but many of them were not happy about one of them coming into their college. That same guy, James Meredith, decided that he would march against the fear that the Ku Klux Klan had long imposed on black people to keep them from voting. So he started a march against fear near Memphis on Highway 51 in Mississippi. And I guess it was the third day of his march. I was not there. There was only one of the journalists there at the time, a young photographer from the Associated Press, Jack Fornell. Jack won the Pulitzer Prize that year because from out of the bushes on the second or third day of the march came to psycho-racist named Robert James Norvell, who opened fire on Meredith with a shotgun filled with birdshot, tiny little pebbles, beads designed to bring down birds. I was in Chicago at the time uh, when Farnell called his office and, and said they shot Meredith, his photographer. His great pictures, uh, and then you know he hung up and went back to the story because he had to run, you know, drive miles to find a phone. His office thought that he said that they had killed Meredith, so that Bulletin went out to all the newsrooms in, in the world and said Bulletin: Civil Rights Marcher changed Meredith shot and killed on Highway 51 in Mississippi. My uh, my boss saw it on the Newswire, tore it off. You know, this was pre-digital paper. Newswire's, you know, typed out stories. And he, he handed me, he says, hey, go down to the south side of Chicago, find the great comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory, and get his reaction to this. I got lost. I arrived at Dick Gregory's house in uh, south side of Chicago. Well, Everybody else in the news business, they're breaking down. They wrote the interview. And Gregory and his wife and two of their kids are headed to a limo. And I said, Mr. Gregory, Mr. Gregory, Jeff Kenner from WCFL, I need an interview. He said, sorry, son, the only way you're going to get to interview me is if you get on the plane with me to Memphis. So I did. (laughs) Local reporters don't do stuff like that. You don't get on the plane. I was 22, blissfully ignorant of what I should and shouldn't do, down on the plane. Plane gets to 10,000 feet. It's a short ride to Memphis. And uh, the stewardess, they weren't flight attendants, they were stewardesses, comes back and she said, are you Jeff? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, Mr. Gregory has just upgraded you to first class. Come with me. I get to the front of the plane and Gregory had bought out the entire front of the plane. That was his wife and two of the kids. And uh, Gregory said, you got on the plane? And that began a relationship uh, which lasted for 15 years. And on the day that the Martin Luther King holiday was voted by Congress, camera crew I had been assigned to work with, who had been working with me off and on for a couple of years, uh, two brilliant young African-American men, they said, Oh, so the office is sending you to interview Dick Gregory. And they'd been hearing my civil rights stories over the two years we worked together. And they thought I was exaggerating all this. And I told them, I said, I just kept falling into this. I'm very lucky. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we approached Dick Gregory on the second floor of the House of Representatives, he's surrounded uh, by a, a number of very beautiful young people from Howard University. And uh, I said, Mr. Gregory, And he looks up and he turns to these college kids and he says, Ah, it's Jeff Kamen. I raised this one from a pup. And it was true. I've been 22 on the ride to Mississippi. And it's been my life. It's like my time with the Dalai Lama. There I am in uh, one of the Senate office buildings. And my pager goes off. Oh, remember pagers? Are you young enough, old enough to remember pagers? Now we'd have phones. We had phones, but you were so expensive. You turned them off, and somebody paid you, you turned it on. And it was the phone number for the press secretary to Senator Patrick Leahy. And it said 911 after it. And I said, oh, man. So I called the press secretary's office. And I said, uh, Joe, it's Jeff Kamen. And uh, what's up? And he said, tell me you're in the building. Tell me you have a camera. I said, still a camera. I was a freelancing man. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, come to the office, do not walk, run. Don't stop, to say hello to anybody at the front desk. If the reception stops, you go right past her, go into Senator Leahy's outer office with your camera on and shooting. I can't tell you more, just do it. So I run past everybody, say, Mr. Kennedy, where are you going, where are you going? I throw up in Senator's outer office, put the camera in with wide angle lens, ching, ching, I'm looking through the finder and there's somebody strangling Senator Leahy, only it's not somebody strangling Leahy it's the Dalai Lama placing a white blessing scarf on Senator Patrick Leahy. Dalai Lama's about hmm, five, six, five, seven. Leahy's six, two, huge. And Senator Leahy had partnered with the Dalai Lama on the uh, deminding movement to get landmines out of the countries where there had been conflict because landmines are forever and they kill especially children. As soon as I make about the sixth or seventh shot, the Dalai Lama grabs Senator Leahy, who's getting really very high on the moment, and he lowers his body into a chair with arms, and he turns toward me. Now he's about 10 feet away, and the Dalai Lama in those days was very playful. He still is, if you watch his live broadcast, he still has a playful quality. And he bounds across the space, grabs me by both of my ears, shakes my head like this, puts his nose up against my nose and goes, ha! Let's go, and leaves the room. Now, my last frame, in those days, you had 36 exposures and a 35 mm camera. Not Now, today, you can shoot until the day is over. <laughs> and he had done that just as I finished my last frame. I lowered myself into the chair next to Senator Leahy. We were both completely blown away by the Dalai Lama's light. And Patrick Leahy has a voice like this. And I'm sitting down next to him, and he turns toward me and he says, Oh, Jeff, you're here too. So my life in journalism projected me into the orbits of the Dalai Lama, Swami Sachidananda, a frightened cop on his way to commit an act of heroism atop a building in New York City, a frightened old white man with a gun in his hands confronted by two civil rights workers. It's been my life. And now I'm understanding more about that. It's only taken me 10 years in Yelkeville to figure out some of this stuff.
0: I plan to be here for more. What are you understanding? What do I understand? You said you're you're first started to understand it. Now. Oh yeah
1: I'm understanding I'm understanding that there is no separation all separations all notions of separation all feelings of separation between and among humans are false hmm. Another big lie. Hmm. And the moment that happens, the moment you take in the fact that separation is artificial.
0: That means we have that to check ourselves when we start making other people the, the opponents or enemies and, and not forgetting that they are also a part of a part of the same.
1: We are all a part of the whole, even if parts of the whole are in stark opposition in the moment.
0: Yeah, that changes the way that I relate to them, if I remember that, right?
1: Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, it's like I'm a a lifelong opponent of cruelty. I've always known that was wrong. And watching other people being manipulated into cruelty against people who don't look like them, don't worship like them, don't love like them, is enraging. But more important than being enraging is it's damaging. So I'm finding a way to set aside my rage and trying to find a way to be helpful. I haven't solved that problem yet. But I probably have between five and ten more good years in which my brain is still in pretty good shape Maybe I can use my toolkit as a documentary filmmaker, as a journalist, as journalist, as a writer, to help find a way to bridge some of these awful gaps in our country right now. Maybe not. I, I'm quite capable of failing over and over again, but I can't stand here and do nothing. Can't do it. Got to find a way. It gives meaning to your time too, right? Oh, no question. Oh yeah, it's completely transactional. We all come... Onto the planet, I think, loving hearts, given an opportunity that love expresses itself, and then you receive more and more love. I've gotten which Beatles song is in, is that uh, the love you get is equal to the love that you make. Yeah. And there's all kinds of ways to make love.
0: Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for uh, spending this time with me, for sharing all your great stories and, and for being you. I really appreciate it. I am
1: honored that you gave me some time to share with your audience, which is made up, I think, of people who are all working on themselves, coming into contact with their own witness. They're probably well beyond me, and it's a privilege to be in their presence and yours.